Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. This is episode 18. Uh, it's quite frightening that we've managed to get to episode 18, but there we are, we're at episode 18. My name's Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and a warm welcome to our podcast. Today I have two Dutch guys, two Dutch gentlemen and an English guest on our podcast. Uh, I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere about two Dutch guys and an English guy walking into a bar, but we haven't fathomed out the punchline yet. Today we have our speakers from for our audit defence workshop that's happening in April in um, Amsterdam. And the premise of the event is that we'll listen to some um, licensing and audit defence experts in the morning sessions, and then in the afternoon we can actually walk through some real-life audit scenarios um, so, so it's a great opportunity to um, pick up some audit defence experience without the nasty bill from the vendor at the end. So I'm very pleased to have three guests on the podcast today. If I could come to Eric Chu, first of all. Eric, please uh, introduce yourself. Sure, thanks, Martin. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Eric Chu. I'm a director of a, a consulting practice called Fisher ITSA Consulting. Uh, we are part of the accounting firm based in London, uh, HW Fisher, a top 30 professional services firm in, in the UK. Um, so what we do um, is a licensing, software licensing specialist. So a lot of the teams um, are, um, working with me, they are all ex-Big um, Four auditors or ex-Vendor um, auditors, so um, um, have a lot of experiences conducting audits in the past. And personally, myself, I used to be a Deloitte auditor for IBM. And I have overseen over 200 enterprise audits um, over the six years period uh, when I was in that role. Um, so really happy to have the uh, opportunity to share this experience with you guys here at the podcast and also uh, later on in Amsterdam in person. Great, thank you. And Richard, could I ask the same of you? Could you introduce yourself? Sure. Good morning, everybody. My name is Richard Spinoza. I'm a director of a company called Delay, which is based in the Netherlands and Romania. Um, we're specialized in supporting end users globally in their challenges with regards to the management of software licensing. And um, before I joined the company as one of the managing partners, I've been working for nine and a half years in Oracle's compliance team called License Management Services, uh, where the last four and a half year I was heading up Oracle's compliance team for Southern Europe, uh, having a team of 40 auditors conducting audits on behalf of Oracle. And before that, I was an auditor myself, performing audits in the Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg area. Um, so as such, I obtained a lot of knowledge and experience with regards to how an Oracle audit is being conducted. Uh, and as such, very happy to share the experiences uh, nowadays to end users and to support them in the best possible way if they are being confronted with an audit from Oracle or any other enterprise or vendors. Perfect. Thank you. And finally, Nico. Nico, it's great to speak to you after all these years. I think I probably must must have been at least a decade ago we used to speak. Uh, welcome to the podcast, and thank you very much for supporting us on our Amsterdam workshop. Please uh, introduce yourself. 
Okay, well, uh, thank you, Martin. Very nice. It, it, it has been a decade. Uh, and actually, uh, you were talking about the joke in the bar. The last time we spoke to each other was in the bar, uh, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, um, well, my name is uh, Nico Blakon, uh, I'm one of the directors of Intusem, uh, a new organization on uh, IP and software management in the Netherlands. Um, and uh, Actually, we are a new organization, but we have a lot of years of, uh, of experience uh, altogether in our group, over 120 years, we've calculated uh, lately. Uh, and um, we are supporting our clients on license management, audits, and all these kinds of stuff. Uh, we do some services uh, in, in this market also. And um, the basis of, of Intusam is built on four ex-Kip Gemini uh, experts on, on this. Um, we are very proud of our independent position. We've been uh, supporting all of our clients, uh, always on the client side, never uh, done any uh, um, audits or reviews uh, from the, the software vendors. Um, I've been in this job since 1998. Uh, and, uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to meet everybody uh, in Amsterdam on April 12th. Perfect, thank you. Well, very warm welcome and good to speak to you after all this time. So, if I could, um, if, if I could come to you first, Eric, um, just on your views on the market at the moment. Wait, what sort of? I mean, we've the iCham review readership has heard from you on previous podcasts around IBM, and you've spoken at our events uh, in, in in London and New York. What's the state of the current market? What are you working on, and what are you seeing in the market? I think um, to a degree, um, business still as usual. Um, so IBM is one of our most commonly defended software vendors from audits, and, um, and and they are still having a similar level of activities in, in the past. Uh, um, so 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 that's on, on on one side. But on the other side, we can we can also see an IBM's moving down to a lot of the, the SMEs or mid-tier customers. When they're conducting an audit program, so not just the big boys, not not just the financial institutions, energy companies that will be audited. Um, you know, SMEs can be uh, targeted for audit as well. And I think another interesting trend is the 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 the, the, the rigorous of an audit. Let's put it that way. The IBM um, it, um, has been changing into the degree of um, the degree of um, rigidity. I, I think, uh, for example. Um, in the past, IBM audits were only focused on some of the high-risk software where um, customers are, are, have huge exposures and, 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 and with high-level, uh, high-cost high items. But nowadays, because you know, partially because uh, consultant, consulting firms like ourselves has been helping the customers get better in terms of managing their licenses, especially with high-risk, high-value items. They are now focusing a lot more on the small items, so i.e. applications that individually won't cost that much, uh, but can still be overused. So um, they're trying to, I mean, in other words, put it in a, in, a, in a very blunt way, they're trying to get every penny out of an audit compared to in the past, they'll be just focusing on high value items. Right, so they just want the, uh, the, the, they're digging down rather than just looking at the cream. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And and how do you view the average maturity of the companies that you're working with these days? Are you seeing a increase in SAM maturity as people are building up their defences against these audits? I, I think IBM it's a it's an interesting one because you can pretty much split the IBM software into two parts. One is 
what IBM called the PDU software. And historically, this is where a lot of the large organizations get caught up because they use a lot of IBM software on PVU license metrics in virtualized environments without meeting IBM's contractual requirements. Um, on that side, a lot of the large organizations we work with nowadays, as, as, uh, as, well, it, they, they are a lot much more mature than they were. So many organizations, large organizations, have implemented IBM's tool, IBM license metric tool. So from that area, the maturity is much better, the risk is a lot lower. Uh, however, on the other side, it's partially maybe because the confidence gain from managing IBM software on the PVU side. Um, all the other IBM software, uh, how do you manage, track, you know, all the other metrics, um, are still being very often overlooked, um, no matter it's big organizations and small organizations. So that is still out there as a high open item, and that's why I mentioned before, IBM is focusing a lot more on the, in, the, in those areas because they can't recover a lot, as much of revenue as, as they did from the, the PBU subcapacity issues in the past. And, and Richard, if I could come to you, are you seeing um, uh, similar behaviour from Oracle? I think you you joined us on the very one of the very first podcasts around Oracle licensing, uh, and and you've got to give it to Oracle. They are consistent in terms of they consistently have hostile relationships with their customers. Uh, nothing new, same 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 old same old from Oracle. Um, yeah, so not a lot of things changed. I mean, it remains uh, to be a big cash cow, of course, in terms of uh, finding compliance opportunities in order to uh, come to new contractual arrangements. Um, if you look at the last two years, you see that a lot of uh, audits are also being leveraged in order to create a momentum to sell cloud, of course, because uh, Oracle, of course, started selling clouds uh, for their whole stack approximately a year ago. They started with applications two years ago, but now for the whole stack, of course, Oracle's products are available in the cloud. And what you see happening actually almost everywhere is that customers that are not aware of how Oracle looks at licensing its software in VMware, and then particularly in uh, VMware configurations in which customers use vSphere 5.1 or higher, in which Oracle requires you to license all the cores of all the physical servers that are part of one and the same center server instance. That is a common trick that we see happening in almost any audit where customers are being confronted with a huge bill because of the setup within VMware. Uh, and as such, that um, compliance claim is then being leveraged by the commercial sales teams to see if they can uh, remediate that by moving the customer to the cloud. And of course, from that perspective, um, uh, for Oracle, of course, that is an interesting opportunity, right? Because if you find a compliance issue and you can say to a customer, uh, we can get this um, out of the way by uh, reducing maybe the financial amounts, but then you need to buy cloud, in which salespeople are nowadays compensated five to seven times on any cloud transaction that they do. Uh, a lot of customers are then being forced into a new cloud transaction uh, where you need to ask yourself if those customers really are willing to start using the cloud. Uh, but yeah, the compliance claims are just being leveraged in order to enforce such a cloud transaction, which is of course a strategic product for Oracle uh, to show to their stakeholders and shareholders that they're selling that. So, so from that perspective, in terms of amount of audits or products uh, incorporated in the scope of an audit, not a lot of things changed. Uh, the big trend is, is is what it was in the past, but now more extreme uh, with regards to Oracle's position around VMware five foot one and higher and then leveraging that more and more to bring customers to the cloud, um, where we see a lot of customers that just 
settled for a cloud transaction without even having the intention to start using cloud, but just to get rid of the audit and to move on. Right. And and there's been a couple of uh, news pieces around the Oracle and VMware stuff. Um, there's a recent piece on the register that I know that you contributed towards, which we could put in the uh, show notes. And there's also the story about the Mars, uh, the confectionery company, um, taking Oracle to court or threatening to take them to court. What, what surprises me about all of this, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, Richard, is um, I'm surprised at how quiet VMware seems to be about all of this. You would have thought they'd be trying to stick up for their customers uh, somehow. Are you, are you seeing any, any evidence of that? Um, well, actually, I think VMware is one of the parties that makes those situations also uh, more problematic, <laughs> to be very honest, uh, because I know that there are some white papers, for example, going around in which VMware tries to make statements about how Oracle um, would need to be licensed in specific VMware configurations, and a lot of customers are relying upon what VMware is saying. Uh, whereas what VMware is saying is not in line with what Oracle's position is with regards to how to license such a configuration. And that causes a lot of confusion in the market because a lot of customers just rely upon what VMware says. But what I would say in these kind of situations is, guys, don't let yourself get fooled. Uh, in the end, Oracle dictates the licensing rules and definitions under which you are allowed to make use of their software, and VMware does that for their own software. VMware doesn't dictate licensing rules for Oracle and the other way around. Um, and what you see is a lot of the issues are coming from one hand, uh, incorrect information being distributed in the market, and on the other hand, customers not being fully aware on how it actually works in such a situation, and of course, Oracle not being very specific and clear in their terms on how they uh, consider certain configurations to be licensed. So that whole unclarity, uh, yeah, creates those situations, and we see that more and more happening almost everywhere. And and finally, if I could come to you, Nico. Um, so you're starting a brand new venture in the Dutch market. Um, so obviously you see a, a degree of confidence in the sound market in, in Netherlands. What's the market like there, and what are you what are you doing with your new company, and, and what are you looking to address in the market? Okay, well, uh, at first, uh, we are uh, a Netherlands-based company. Uh, we work in globally, so that's uh, uh, a little bit of a differentiation. Uh, what we see at the moment in the Netherlands is that, that a few of the, the, the vendors out there are, are toughening, and, and a few of them are, uh, well, uh, searching for uh, their way into, like, like Richard already said, uh, getting uh, their cloud products uh, out there. Uh, and I've been in, in a few audits lately and I've seen that uh, at the table, uh, for instance, Microsoft said, okay, all of the trouble you have now in this audit can be gone if you decide for Office 365 for us. And I actually had two CIOs that, uh, uh, that really said they felt blackmailed at that point in time. And uh, well, that, that's what I see happening at this, this, uh, at this moment. Um, the market uh, for, for into SAM, uh, as we see it, is, is big enough. Uh, what we see is that uh, a few organizations that were independent in the Netherlands uh, now became part of, uh, uh, of a software reseller, so uh, they are not independent anymore. Um, but we, we, we tend to work uh, globally, and, and uh, we've seen it in the past, and we've seen it at the moment, uh, is that uh, 
there's a little bit of growth in maturity at, uh, at the organizations, but still uh, uh, an organization I did uh, eight years ago uh, had a merger and uh, well, it's now back at, uh, at level one. Uh, so time and time again, we, we, we can start up and, and uh, there's still a market and there will be a market for, uh, for the coming 10 years, I think. So, so I like the I like the um, analogy there that you said that people are being blackmailed to, to look at cloud in order to, to um, deflate an audit request. So yeah, what what's what's um, and this is for a question for anybody. What evidence have you seen of this uh, of this inaction out in the field? I mean, I know that um, Richard, you said that sales guys are being heavily. Um, Incentivize to, to push cloud, um, and I know that Oracle are not alone on this. Uh, what what, are the, what's, what things have you seen in terms of people pushing the cloud too aggressively? Well, I think I think for every software vendor, so it's not not only Oracle, uh, but it will be for any other software vendor like SAP or Microsoft uh, as well. Is that of course in the end those enterprise software vendors they need to sell software. Right? That's their main objective. And of course, if there is a commercial momentum that you can create by finding a compliance issue, then I think any vendor will leverage that momentum in order to see if they can sell the strategic products. Uh, not only from a personal sales incentive perspective, but also because of the fact that it's, of course, the strategy of all the big software vendors. Um, what is more concerning to me in these kind of situations is that what you typically see is that these kind of situations are happening because of the fact that people are not well prepared when they go through an audit or they're asking for support too late, which results in the fact that they are in such a situation that they can be blackmailed, to use Nico's words, uh, instead of managing those licenses themselves proactively to avoid such a situation. Because if you take controls and end user yourself, you can avoid those situations. But typically, the, the blackmailing situation occurs if a customer hasn't managed it and then is being confronted with a compliance claim during an audit. And then it's typically too late, right? Because then there is a lot of uh, pressure on it. Uh, depending on the vendor, there may be contractual terms which the customer signed for where it says they need to resolve it within a certain period of time. So then there is a lot of pressure in there. And the other concerning thing, apart from uh, customers not being proactively themselves and therefore ending up in such a situation, is that I see a lot of people not being aware of the fact on what does it actually mean moving to the cloud, and is it only the transaction, or does it take uh, more in order to get there? And what I mean with that is that I see a lot of customers that have been under an audit, they have settled to move into the cloud, and let's say they pay 200k for a cloud team. And then they actually may think, okay, let's move to the cloud because we already bought those, that stuff, so let's start doing that. But those don't realize themselves that they may have done customizations and modifications to their on-premise installation for the last 10 years by multiple different parties that um, haven't maybe documented well what customizations and modifications have been made to those on-premise installations. And therefore, once they want to move to the cloud and have the same functionality as what they have on-premise, they don't realize themselves that it requires still a lot of investment in terms of consultancy to get those modifications and customizations implemented into their cloud solution as well. So for me, it is a 
apart from the, the, the blackmailing situations, also a lot of customers just not simply being aware of the fact what it all entails to really move to the cloud and that additional costs are um, to be expected if you have a highly customized on-premise solution that you want to bring to the cloud. Eric, any points to add there? Um, I think, uh, let, let me speak from the IBM's point, it's slightly different. I think part, part of that's because IBM's probably the slowest one to, responds to, the, to respond to the, uh, the whole cloud shift compared to, to Microsoft and Oracle. So even if you look at IBM's software lined up at the moment, not a, a large part of its portfolio is still not on the cloud yet. So um, instead of um, blackmailing the customer or, or using audit settlements or, or audit triggers as some kind of a leverage to push customers to clouds, um, I, um, I, this is not something IBM do that often. However, I, I don't think it's a good news though, because if you think, think about it, being blackmailed into using something new, although you don't want to, will still have business value for, for you, right? However, for IBM, um, if you have a big compliance settlement, um, for example, from subcapacity, and there isn't an a, a, a option to give you heavily discounted cloud offer, so you basically ended up buying licenses you don't need anymore. So <laughs> if it depends on what angle you're looking at it, and it's, it's potentially it can be, what, what can be worse of being blackmailed to use something new is you know, being, being blackmailed into buying something you, don't, you can't use at all, or you won't use at all. So I think that, that's where IBM is at the moment. Uh, not a lot of uh, cloud push, but customers are, are, are being to buy software that they no longer need um, by the end of the audit. Can we use this cloud incentive mm -hmm. as a to our advantage? I mean, one of the you know fundamental negotiation uh, points when you're talking with a vendor is to learn about what they're trying to push and what they're incentivized for. Can we use that to our advantage with with um, with these heavy incentives for sales guys? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because um, what you see uh, happening more and more uh, in, in case of customers are found to be out of compliance. And let's say there is a compliance issue of uh, $600K uh, for the on-premise situation that they have. And let's say after discount, the customer pay 400k dollars for the licenses, and then we talk about Oracle, 22% on the net license fee is to support maintenance, right? Now, what you see happening a lot is that because of the fact that salespeople are having such a huge incentive by selling cloud, is that by adding a bit of cloud into the whole transaction, salespeople are willing to give a higher discount on the on-premise licenses as well, resulting in the fact that the uh, support maintenance, which is at all times 22% of the net license fee, for the on-premise licenses goes uh, down as well. So what you see a lot is that a lot of uh, salespeople push or customers that are smart are saying, okay, even if we're not willing to start making use of the cloud, we're going to buy a piece of cloud in the whole transaction in order to leverage a higher discount on my on-premise licenses, resulting in the fact that my uh, net support maintenance that I'm paying year over year from an OPEX perspective will go down and, and they construct a deal like that. So then in the end, uh, on the longer term, they get more favorable terms because their OPEX goes down. And I'm sure that the similar will be something that you can negotiate with Microsoft 
uh, or other vendors. Uh, so leveraging what they want to sell for your own benefit is something that definitely can help you. I agree with that uh, uh, on, on uh, the part uh, uh, that we still need to, to look at uh, the CAPEX OPEX discussion because uh, uh, if uh, if you look at uh, the fact that you uh, buy a subscription uh, for uh, for a cloud uh, environment, uh, still you need to, to, to make sure that this subscription is at least one year or maybe two or three or more. Uh, and um, the question I have about that is, is, is it still uh, OPEX or is it the CAPEX uh, at that point in time? Because you're, uh, it, it, it is a contract in the beginning, uh, that, that's part one. Um, what I've also seen is uh, one of the things, and that's why I called it the blackmail uh, a little earlier on, is that uh, one of the, the customers I was, uh, I was helping out with uh, was uh, deciding to go either to go to to Microsoft, uh, Google, or something that Capgemini was uh, was working out at that point in time, and uh, Microsoft knew about that, and they said, "Okay, everything is off table if you go for Microsoft." And Microsoft knew at that point in time that they were uh, um, in 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 a losing situation because of the the, uh, the price proceed at that point, and and yeah, then and, and it. it it almost looks like if it's a scripted environment where you come into when you want to buy the new licenses in the cloud environment. Okay, I'd like to cover a couple of um, things that I've seen in the market recently. I'd love to get your advice on this. Um, I've spoken to a customer recently that was, um, I can't remember whether they were buying a company or uh, or divesting one, but... Basically, they were trying to allocate their entitlement, so legitimate perpetual entitlement, across a number of different subsidiaries. And the, the software vendor was not, um, was not lying, they weren't, but they just weren't being very helpful and they weren't being um, completely transparent. So what advice would you give to companies looking to do that uh, within the European Union and uh, you know, when it's when it meets the criteria for being able to transfer licenses. Um, so, the, the first recommendation that I would uh, give to these kind of customers is that if you're having a organization that is divesting or uh, acquiring legal entities on a regular basis, at all times, first of all, make sure that in your license agreement itself, you have proper divestiture clauses and acquisition and merger clauses in your license agreements that uh, make sure that uh, you are allowed to uh, do such a license assignment or a license divestiture, so to say, um, in case of these kind of situations and there are opportunities to add specific contractual language to your license agreements in order to facilitate these kind of situations. Sorry to interrupt Richard but I, I get that but surely the law supersedes any contract you might put or any terms you might write? Uh, well yes and no because in the end if you have agreed upon license agreement where you bought licenses against a certain customer definition in which the vendor allows the software to be used by a number of legal entities, then that is what you've contractually agreed in your agreement with the vendor, right? Um, so if you haven't agreed something upfront around that, then 
uh, apart from the legal discussion, you at all times haven't um, covered it up front in your agreements to um, cover such a situation, right? Then the second thing is, uh, if you're talking about um, uh, European law, then of course the law systems of different countries are different. Um, so first of all, you need to see under which law system a license agreement has been agreed upon, because there are slightly differences, for example, between UK law and Dutch law um, that I happen to know of. Um, so that is the first thing, and then you would need to see what specific local legislations allow you to do so, or what doesn't allow you to do so. Um, a lot of customers are also referring to the uh, European Court ruling that has been a couple of years ago, where there was a, a lawsuit between Usoft and Oracle about if you, if there is an uh, under European law if there is an opportunity to sell licenses to third parties, right? So if I'm an organization and I want to sell licenses that I'm not using anymore, if you're allowed to do that, to sell that to uh, a third party, the second-hand licensing market actually started with that. Um, a lot of customers, I think, especially from Microsoft, are uh, thinking about that and leveraging that ruling in order to sell licenses between each other. But if we're talking, for example, about Oracle, uh, I have not seen any customer that has been leveraging that in order to allow such a transaction, simply because of the fact that a lot of customers forget that mm -hmm. selling the license is one, but it's typically not the problem. The problem for customers in terms of cost is the operational expenses, the OPEX. And selling a license from one company to another company without the involvement of Oracle would result in the fact that a customer can buy a second-hand license as per the ruling of the European Court, but then still would need to have support maintenance, technical support in case of issues, uh, on those licenses. Now, if there hasn't been any transactions uh, in which Oracle was involved, then, of course, where are you going to base the fees for your support maintenance on? Because, as I said, the support maintenance is always based on 22% of the net license fees. So if Oracle isn't involved and you sell a license from one legal entity to another legal entity and you would go to Oracle to ask for a support maintenance contract, which 99 out of the 100 customers would do because it's very business critical enterprise software and they want to have a support contract for it, then the result will be that if you ask Oracle to get technical support for it, you will get a support bill on the list license price. And that is typically what a lot of customers don't want because that is the recurring cost that comes in year over year over year. So the whole ruling from the European Court on the USOFT case, uh, from an Oracle perspective, doesn't really help a lot of customers, to be very honest. And then you've got the option. Uh, that's, that's, also why, and that's also why Oracle is uh, attacking uh, Rimini Street at the moment, I think, to make sure that, uh, uh, that that's not a way out of uh, the thing you've just been talking about there, Richard. Yeah, so there are, there's, there's of course an ongoing lawsuit between Oracle and Rimini Street around that. And um, I, I talked to quite some customers that moved over, for example, to third-party uh, software, uh, sorry, third-party support provider like Rimini Street. And they asked me, Richard, what is your view on that? And I think in terms of reducing your technical support costs, of course, it's a, it's a very interesting model, right? Uh, Rimini Street just says, we uh, charge you 50% of what you're paying now towards Oracle, and we deliver the technical support services for you for that fee. So a lot of customers can reduce their OPEX for that. Uh, the problem, however, I see in there is, is that uh, a lot of people uh, forget that um, support maintenance from Oracle is not only having the right 
to ask for technical support in case of issues or bug fixes, but also includes the right to make use of the latest version of the software. Now, Rimini Street and other uh, similar companies facilitating that by saying, if you move to us, we will make sure that the moment that you uh, leave Oracle support, we will download the latest versions of the software that you're entitled to make use of. And we will build up a software archive or catalog to make sure that if going forward you want to upgrade to a later version of the software, you still have that software on a disk somewhere in your office and you can deploy that software. But the controls around that are typically lacking. So if I would be Oracle and a customer would move away from Oracle support and they would enter into a contract with Rimini Street or any other third-party support provider, I would just wait a year or two, do an audit, find out that there is somewhere, somebody in the organization and then in a country that you may not completely control from a software license management perspective, and the auditors will find out that there is a software version deployed that you're actually not entitled to deploy. And then, of course, the whole um, shebang starts again because then you have a compliance situation in which you provide Oracle actually the evidence in their hands to put a big compliance claim on you because you haven't paid support maintenance with all the reinstatements or the rebuy of licenses as a result. So, yeah. in the end, for me, it's always about customers should be really understanding what the pros and cons are of the decisions that they are making and taking a proactive attitude to manage the licenses themselves so that they really can make a proper informed business decision that doesn't um, bite them in the foot. I'm not sure if that translates to English, but doesn't hurt them at a later stage because of the fact that they didn't realize what the consequences were of a decision made at a certain moment in time. Um, I, I agree with Martin. Um, I think um, Richard made some really good points here. But um, from, from my point of view, bottom line, it's when you're divesting your business and tr you're trying to transfer the license now to that entity that you're selling off, you have basically two options, right? One, one is to work with a vendor and then get the transaction recognized properly. One is to do it without the recognition of the vendor, which is what Richard just described, you know, treat them as second-hand licenses. You won't get official support. You won't get an eligibility to upgrade to later versions after the transaction. Um, I think if we think about from, from, a, from a working with the vendor approach point of view, um, I think one of the challenges that a lot of the customer have when they're divesting entities is that they can't demonstrate to the vendor that the license ownership and the license usage of the entity they're divesting is properly ring-fenced. And that actually put them in a very difficult position. For example, I, I, I actually came into a conversation with, with a large uh, UK PLC uh, in, in, in the past couple of months, and they're, they're divesting a, a large proportion of the business. And they had a huge contract with IBM that was just renewed last year. Now, one of the biggest challenges they have is they can't really tell IBM, you know, how many licenses are or were allocated to the entity that they were divesting, and how many of that is actually utilized. So that put them in a really weak position trying to negotiate with IBM. And by the end of that, so 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 IBM is basically coming back to say that we, we allow you to transfer out, but you're going to pay us a, a handsome fee to facilitate the transfer because you can't tell us for for sure, you know, how many licenses you're transferring out. Um, so so I think that's kind of back to the point of why organisations need to have a good control of their license assets because when you're trying to divest your entities mm -hmm. and transfer the licensing out without a good 
visibility of how much you own and how much you're using the entity will put you in a very weak negotiation position. And I think that's very important if you choose um, to work with a vendor during the divestment well, process. I do agree, Eric. And I, and I think maybe as a to, to, to um, explain a bit on a real life example that we've seen at a customer situation, um, ju just a short overview of what we see. So there was a company here in the Netherlands and they acquired, they acquired another company for a total acquisition sum of 50 million euros, 50 million euros. And in the acquisition papers, they were smart in this case, but you see that very rarely, but in the acquisition papers, they said, okay, if there are any outstanding software compliance issues for five vendors, being Microsoft, Oracle, IBM, SAP, and I think it was Adobe, uh, and we identify any of those compliance issues within a period of one year after the acquisition has happened, then any financial claims resulting of this will be sent to the previous owner of the company. So they called us and said, hey, guys, can you do an assessment on Oracle so that we can determine what our current compliance position is for Oracle? Now, for Oracle only, the list license compliance issue was 26 million euros on an acquisition of 50 million euros. So in this case, this customer was very happy that they put this clause in the agreement so they could send the bill, which was in the end settled for a smaller amount. But in the end, they were able to send the bill to the previous owner of the company. But in reality, what you see happening a lot with mergers and acquisitions is that people are not, first of all, that smart to put these kind of clauses in the agreements. Because in the due diligence that the IP lawyers or the, the acquisition lawyers are uh, following through such a merger and acquisition uh, process is that the only thing they do is they validate if there is an agreement in place. So they say, okay, you're using Oracle, okay. Is there an Oracle agreement in place? Yes, okay, tick in the box. But understanding what the deployment really is of Oracle or any other software vendor is of course not something that those uh, acquisition lawyers are looking at. But a lot of financial liabilities are hidden as a result of that. And people not having a clear view of what they're deploying, what they're using, and how it relates to current entitlements, and whose responsibility is to pick up the financial um, exposure related to that, causes a lot of issues for a lot of companies. And that's just a lack of insight. A final question I have is, um, regarding another issue that I've seen in the market very recently is, uh, and this is with, this is with SAP, and the customer, I think they were going through some sort of um, true up or negotiation with SAP and they went for clarification to their account manager and said, please can you clarify exactly how I measure this certain metric? And SAP responded, and this was not a formal SAP response, I'm, I'm sure, this was just a, an account manager, but they said, it's not my responsibility to tell you how to measure your licensing. So that me, leads me to think, well, who on earth is supposed to tell me if it's not the vendor themselves? What advice would you give to an organization in that scenario where they're getting uh, a pushback from the software supplier uh, on, on clarity on the license program? 
Okay, um, uh, we we've been doing that with uh, with a few SAP clients, uh, and and one of the things that we normally do is uh, if if you ask this question to to SAP, ninety eight percent of the times you will get no answer from uh, from SAP. Uh, the other thing you can do is then uh, start out uh, writing down what all the activities are uh, under uh, the, the, the various uh, license uh, models they have and uh, just put it uh, in, in, in your agreement uh, towards uh, uh, SAP and settle on it uh, like that. And uh, mostly uh, you can have a lot of money uh, flowing back to your organization when you do it like that. Yeah, I do agree with Nico. I mean, first of all, before you enter into an agreement, in this case with SAP, make sure that you're completely clear on the license metric definitions. And if there is any ambiguity around that, make sure that you get clarification in your contract before you sign the contract, right? Because that is the commercial momentum. Now, in a situation in which a customer didn't look into that before they signed into the agreement, and they go to their sales account manager for clarification and they don't get a response. What we've been doing towards SAP, but also other software vendors, is that um, in the end, there is one uh, um, clause typically in the agreement, which is the entire agreement clause, which says only authorized representatives of the vendor legal entity where you're entering into the license agreement with, those people can make any changes to the terms and conditions of the agreement. So that means that in such a situation, if you've already entered into the license agreement, send the letter to the legal counsel of that specific local entity of the software vendor through which you have entered into the license agreement and ask them written confirmation with regards to the specific um, license metric and how you should measure the usage of certain products. Because in the end, they are the legal representatives of the company that would need to provide an answer. And if they provide an answer, it's also legally binding because they are the authorized representatives that can make such a statement. Right. So uh, you would... You and, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, Manny, just a couple of points from me, I guess, um, from Angos. First of all, for SAP, um, as we all know, license, license metrics are quite complex and can be customized. I mean, even for the standard SAP license definition, it's actually available for download, but it's it's an IT page document that defines every single standard SAP metrics. Um, any customized negotiated metrics are not defined in that document. Um, so so that's 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 one point I want to raise. The second point I want to raise is what they should do and whether they can do it um, by they I mean the vendors is two separate questions. Yes, on paper the publishers should define the license metrics and should provide assistance to show the customer how to measure the metrics. However, in reality, the answer is they simply don't know. Right? For example, like IBM. IBM doesn't know how to, well, IBM knows how the license metrics are defined, but they don't really know how to measure it to a degree that they're actually set in their passport advantage agreement, which is the standard global contract. There's a line there to say that for everything that's not defined as process of value unit, you, the customer, you need to find a way to manually track this. And we're not going to help you on how to manually track these licenses. So by the end of the day, it, it really depends on the, the vendor's maturity of really understanding the licensing and how to manage it themselves. If they, they don't have the answer, they can't tell you. Um, so in this particular instance, it's IBM because they used um, Deloitte and KPMGs as their global audit partners for the past 15 years. So that kind of knowledge is actually 
kept within those auditors and, 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 and consultants like ourselves who work in the previous environments similar um, to the auditors. Um, so so, so that, 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 that's a very challenging thing for the customer to understand and, and, and get hold to. That's just, um, that's I, just broken, I think isn't that, it? Sorry? That's just broken. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I think if you look at it from the other hand side, uh, IBM will say, well, if you read the menus, for example, like there is a uh, IBM piece of application called Cosmos, it's licensed on different type of roles of users. If you, if someone spend the time to read all the manuals, they and and all the support documents, they can develop their own techniques to to you know identify the user access rights for each individual user and try to categorize them into different user types. So the answer is out there embedded in the various documents. But from an IBM point of view, they don't have a central knowledge point to say these are the ten step guides to monitor commerce users to calculate commerce user types. So IBM will say that, well, the knowledge is out there, but we, have, we just haven't brought them together and put them into a user-friendly story so you can follow it and just run it. Um, so I think that will be their defense. So in preparation for our audit defense workshop in Amsterdam, which is near Schiphol Airport, I think on the um, 12th of April, um, Eric, could you provide a quick summary? What can we look forward to at that session? Right, so um, obviously based on my experience and our team's experience in the course, uh, I'll be explaining how the IBM audit process works, right? How IBM target its customers, um, how they notify their customers for audit, the whole entire life cycle, how is it done and what, is, uh, what are the risks involved in each step and how customers can expose themselves accidentally if they're not aware of the risks. Um, in addition, um, especially in an afternoon session, I'll be hoping to run through a scenario analysis to show customer what they can do and what they can't do in an audit um, defense position. Uh, because in my experience, most of the IBM compliance findings are not really caused by genuine overusage of software. It's caused by misconfiguration, you know, ticking a box. Um, in a system that nobody knows what, what it means. Um, so what that you can actually fix before the auditors come in so that you won't expose yourself um, to an audit. So we, we try to highlight that to the customer, so um, to, to the audience, so that by the end of the workshop, they will have a lot of valuable points um, to hand. And, and, and when in an event they're getting audited by IBM, uh, they will have something to defend themselves. Perfect, thank you. And Richard? Yeah, so in the session that I will present uh, during that day, I will uh, follow the similar kind of topics as, uh, as Eric was just mentioning, but then, of course, focused around Oracle. Uh, so we will go through how uh, is Oracle conducting audits, uh, how are you getting selected for an audit, what are the things that Oracle is looking at in order to see if you are at risk, um, what are the different steps that will be followed during the course of an audit and what uh, things you should be aware of during those different steps in order to understand what you can do in order to avoid any risks related to uh, these steps for yourself. Um, so we'll go through the whole process, the pros and cons and what is really happening as well at the Oracle side uh, and what you can do to protect yourselves. Uh, but also uh, for people to understand what they can do in order to um, uh, optimize or to uh, look at their software deployment before uh, the data needs to be shared with Oracle and what you can do in order to proactively manage that to avoid the financial claims that can come out of uh, uh, an Oracle audit. 
Um, and in the afternoon session, of course, we will do the, the role plays in which we will uh, support the customers to uh, real-life situations if they would be um, uh, under audit by Oracle and how you can um, counterpart the different steps and the different discussions that you will have during such an audit in order to uh, make the people well prepared if the Oracle audit comes at their desk at a certain moment in time. Thank you. And finally, Nico, you also joined us on the 12th of April. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I will join you at the 12th of April, and uh, as you've seen, my topic uh, will be uh, on uh, the, the the impact that uh, that an audit that an audit have on different levels uh, within an organization, and how you prepare all the, those different levels within the organization. Everybody at the workfloor, middle management, senior management, they all need to know what they can and cannot uh, communicate about. Uh, how you prepare your organization, with your legal department, uh, how are you going to, to handle commercial, privacy, security, and data protection issues. Uh, and, and then in the end, make sure that you uh, get the best result out of the uh, out of the audit, or maybe even avoid the audit. Because if you have a protocol uh, already within your organization, then you uh, might uh, eight out of ten time be able to to avoid the audit. Perfect. Thank you. So thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Uh, I look forward to seeing you on the twelfth of April. And uh, to our listeners, thank you very much for listening.